Welcome back to the conversation. I'm joined here now by my friend Jonathan Larson, and we're going to talk about the newly appointed Deputy Chief of Staff to the incoming Biden administration, Bruce Reed. This is somebody who we've been talking a lot about on TYT, and Jonathan has been looking at very closely. This is somebody who, in 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 many ways, has has tracked. Uh, the right wing of the Democratic Party going back to the very early 1980s. And it's wild to think that here in 2020, he's coming into a high level in the uh, Biden administration. Uh, J- Jonathan, what was your reaction when you first heard that news? Well, so I, I just to be clear, I actually did this story, the, the one we're talking about today, before the the um, appointment became became public. And I was doing it sort of anticipating the, the possibility of an education appointment. Sure, and, and he had, right, and he, maybe had, we should explain. he had been, he, he had he been read, floated yeah. as OMB director as well. And Biden administration put Nira Tan in there and said, aren't you lefties happy? You know, we put Nira in here instead of, instead of Bruce right. Reed. So. Right, and, and, and especially once OMB was off the table, I just thought, well, it would be interesting to see where might he go next. So I just, you know, did what you do. I started looking at his CV, and it turns out that for two years he ran this this philanthropic institute called the Broad Foundation, which essentially had the mission of, if not privatizing outright, charterizing whole swaths of the public school system. And so the first thing I thought there was, well, given Reed's record in terms of pushing austerity measures on the social safety net, all kinds of things like that, being being as you put it, sort of on the conservative end of the Democratic Party when it came to things like the crime bill and welfare and all that kind of stuff in the in the 90s. The first thing I thought was, well, I wonder whether there's any intersection between DeVos's philanthropic pursuit of charter schools and more and the Broad Foundation, which Reed was running at the time. And and as you know, we found out there was, right? They, they did actually funnel some of their money to groups that were led by Betsy DeVos. And so now we know that Reed is going to be deputy chief of staff. And so the question is, well, what issues, right, fall under the deputy chief of staff's purview, which I imagine would be roughly all, and then right. Correct. What? Right. I mean, you would know better than I do, but that's. that's no, you fine. got it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the then the follow up question is, well, then what will he be doing about that? At least in terms of education, for the for the purposes of this story. And and you probably have some some decent insights on what role a deputy chief of staff would play, where that influence might be felt. Well, it 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 depends, you know, the, because yeah. at the, at that level. It gets into turf, and so, you know, the the chief of staff obviously has control over everything. You know, in so far as he or she can express their will, everyone you know, kind of below them, then you know, jockeys for for turf under underneath them. And so, but it it is interesting to think about to think about Bruce Reed in the context of of the DeVos family because. Yeah, you you might think, well, DeVos family; these are extreme dominionist right wingers. What on earth could they possibly have in common you know, with somebody who is so close to to Joe Biden? Well, you know, if you look at Bruce Reed's history, you know, he he was he's 
co-founder-ish of the, the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council, which as viewers may or may not know, was kind of established kind of fight the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in the early 1980s. It eventually gave way to or gave birth to the kind of Clinton campaign. The Clinton was an early leader of the DLC. And and this this element of the party kind of evolved into what what we have today as the right as the right wing of the party, and so you you could see how the values that they were trying to bring into the party align very closely with with the DeVos wing. What what did what did Reid do while he was with this organization? What were the what were, you know what what were the objectives of this organization? And what kind of groups was was he working with? Well, so I want to, I just want to quickly add a, a quick note to what you just said, laying out uh, Reed's history. DeVos, I think people forget, was not toxic for her entire career with the Democratic Party, right? Cory Booker sat on boards of some of these mm-hmm. groups with her at, at her invitation. So it wasn't until I think post Trump and even Brode, Eli Brode, the billionaire behind the Brode Foundation, he disavowed, I shouldn't say disavowed because there was no public embrace of her beforehand, but he opposed her or at least spoke out in opposition when she was appointed to the Trump cabinet as Secretary of Education. In terms of, in terms of what Reed did at the Broad Foundation, it's really opaque, right? As you know, these these organizations operate in almost total secrecy. They don't have to disclose their donors, so and and they don't have to disclose what they ask for from the from the organizations they donate to. And the the Broad Foundation sent money. Before, during, and after Reed's tenure, to a huge constellation of these groups, a handful of them were led by DeVos and and people, including one guy who's now Secretary for uh, Assistant Secretary of Education for Policy. He was in that mix as well, but also to groups that were funded by DeVos and groups that were also funded by the Waltons and others. And uh, Andre Perry at the Brookings Institution. He he wrote a lot about the effect of some of these uh, some of these uh, you know I wouldn't say astroturf necessarily but these rich foundations helped sort of fund a schism for instance in the black community uh, between pro charter uh, parents black parents and anti-charter parents. And you saw a lot of that stuff play out in in New Orleans. And, and Andre Perry writes about the fact that these the effect of these these uh, foundations coming in and funding these really robust, well-funded pro-charter movements, which are also generally anti-labor, if not trying to do away with unions entirely, uh, the Broad Foundation funded lawsuits that or groups that were behind lawsuits that were aimed at weakening teacher protections in terms of tenure and, and things along those lines. But as as Perry writes, um, the schools are not just educational institutions; they're community institutions. And so, what happened was, in some of these cities, you had really significant portions of the black community's middle class just shut out of jobs. Like the middle class, in specific 
cities and communities were decimated by some of these movements. And and the communities themselves lost these sort of communal hubs as well. So it, it had a ripple effect beyond, you know, beyond just the sort of the charter versus versus labor aspect, I would say. For sure, and and some of that was actually by design. You know, the the Dominionist Church that DeVos was a part of, and and DeVos herself has 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 talked about this. That there there was a there there was a real animosity that that her kind of parents who had kind of brought her into this community had toward the public school because they felt like the public school was supplanting the 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 rightful place of the church. As the center of the community, that that they saw people organizing their their free society, their community around around the local school, and they and they thought that that around was around a that secular institution, a secular institution, and yeah, that was yeah. godless, and that and that people ought to be organizing their communities around the church, and so that kind of led to this that 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 fed this assault then on this secular institution. You know, if we if we drive if we drive this institution out. Then the godly one, you know, will will come back and we'll have our our godly community again. But so people understand, Bruce Reed, you know, worked with was at the Clinton White House while while Joe Biden was writing the crime bill. He worked that I think that's how they first met. That he, Bruce Reed was helping Joe Biden with the with the crime bill. He Bruce Reed was part of the the deficit commission that that Biden chaired. He he kind of has staffed that. Um, what do you expect to see, you know, his influence be in a in a in a Biden administration? Well, it's 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 really interesting, at least in terms of education, right? I'm blanking on the um, the name of the new education secretary's uh, uh, nominee. Cardona, yeah. Thank you. Right. He doesn't have a big profile in terms of policy on this stuff, and he doesn't have a big national constituency behind him. He doesn't. Bring a large power base to this role, so potentially, especially on an area where there's not going to be a lot of media attention, potentially that's that's a that could be seen by Reed as like a weak link, an area where he could exert some influence. Whether whether that happens, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Well, John, this was some tremendous reporting on your part. Thanks for. Bringing this to light, and you were prescient. It turned out that he was indeed, even though he got passed over for OMB director, going to get a high-level position in the Biden administration. I guess the best the left can take from this is that they pushed him all the way down to deputy chief of staff rather than anything more powerful. Thanks again for joining us in the conversation. Thanks so much, Ryan. All right, welcome back to the conversation. I'm joined here this evening by Norman Solomon of Roots Action, who's gonna tell us a little bit about the honeymoon campaign, or more specifically, the no honeymoon campaign. Norman, tell us what you've got cooking over at Roots Action. Well, really the gist is we're in the new step after first fighting for Bernie Sanders to be the nominee this year of the Democratic Party, and then fighting to defeat Donald Trump using Joe Biden as the only means in swing states where we campaigned heavily in the fall to prevent Trump from getting a second term. You know, As Cornell West said, at that point it was a choice between a neoliberal and a neo-fascist. And we thought that 
defeating the neo-fascist was the better of the two options. Now we're into the next step. You know, our vote Trump out campaign at rootsaction.org was always saying, first we vote Trump out, then we challenge Biden. And so we're making good on that pledge. We've just launched the No Honeymoon campaign. And I think really, Ryan, one of the key points is that after two times in the last few decades, where a Democrat came into the White House and the left, for the most part, failed to challenge him. The results were disastrous in terms of policy, you know, NAFTA, letting houses sink underwater under Obama, and also Republicans storming back two years later and taking the Congress. So we've got to do it differently this time. And that's what No Honeymoon is about. So what was, tell people a little bit about what 2009 was was like for you, because I, I know that you felt in your heart and you know in your mind that there should be no honeymoon for President Obama, but but the politics were different at the time. You know, it was a lot more difficult to get a groundswell of opposition to some to some of his policies because there was a there was very much of an attitude of he's got this. You know, don't don't worry don't worry about this. You know, he's he's swept into power. Yes, we can. Gonna be okay, and and groups that did try to challenge him were really were really uh, you know shut shut down in in the most visceral terms that Rahm Emanuel's uh, as Rahm Emanuel famously delivered them. Um, what what was that like uh, for you, and and do you feel like it's it's significantly different this time around? I think it is significantly different uh, for me, who was elected as an Obama delegate in two thousand eight, on the theory that Hillary Clinton would have been worse. I can't say I was disillusioned because I didn't have illusions about Obama. Mm-hmm. As I wrote at the time, he was a militarist and a corporatist. But I was very disappointed and disturbed really by the extent to which, as I think you accurately describe, so many progressives and progressive groups basically threw in the towel, fighting mm-hmm. on principle and on program. And I also agree very much that we're in quite a different situation now. We're in as progressives, as groups, as organizers, as individuals. We're in a much stronger position now. And it's an imperative, and you know, the No Honeymoon campaign is part of this push, that we utilize the strength that we have. I mean, the progressives online are much stronger now than in 2008. We're coming off a time where illusions have been largely dispelled. Barack Obama was good at being sort of that blank slate, as he said Mm -hmm. in his Audacity of Hope book. People were good at projecting onto him. He loved that. It was a scam, mostly. He populated his cabinet with Wall Street corporate types. So there were illusions about Obama that, although there are some propagated by corporate media about Joe Biden, there's a lot more realism, you know, and Roots Action was one of many groups that fought very hard by informing people during last year and most of this year about Biden's real record. So across the board, African Americans, anti-war people, those who were fighting for economic justice, environmental justice. For the most part, there was an understanding of who Joe Biden is, and now we have an imperative to say it's not enough to have a high jump over low standards to say that he's going to greatly excel. Um, uh, Trump, I mean, I, I have a, a, a raccoon in my backyard who could excel Trump. The, the real thing is corporate uh, power, militarism, and the reality that you know progressives can have huge effects 
if we don't simply settle for you know grade him on a curve, grade Biden on a curve. So it's about realism, it's about fighting for power and realizing that we have power if we can mobilize. What's been the response from people in the kind of democratic power structure to to launching this this project? It's been really mixed. In terms of the power structure, we've gotten the predictable feedback from Democratic Party sort of officials and acolytes and so forth that, hey, we just got to mobilize and close ranks behind Biden. But I have to say in terms of people who respond via social media and our email blasts, and we do have a list now of 1.2 million of the Roots Action list in the US around the country. It's been mostly favorable because people, I think, recognize that if we just go along to get along with Biden, we're in trouble. But I do think overall that there's a battle ahead. And after the Georgia vote, I think that battle will be joined more emphatically because the contradictions are are huge. And I know at Roots Action, we're in a situation where we're prioritizing which of the appointees of Biden we're going to fight most emphatically. One is certainly Avril Haines, a director of central intelligence person, a pro-torture person from the Obama administration, you know, running interference for basically the CIA against what was going on in Capitol Hill in terms of investigations, also instrumental in the drone war. You've got Antony Blinken appointed for Secretary of State, who's part of, you know, the, the, the Biden mode used to be called back in Delaware, the Delaware way. Now it's sort of the West End exec way of Antony Blinken and others, these pay to play influence peddling outfits that Biden seems completely comfortable with. And Antony Blinken was chief of staff for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 2002 when Biden chaired and they just had you know, a, just a farcical set of hearings to usher the way to the mm-hmm. horrible invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. And then you've got Tom Vilsack, who I think the internet's burning up over information about Vilsack, who again was eight years. I mean, this is a back to the future thing from Biden where we're supposed to think that we go back to the Obama sort of mode and we're okay. We're not on so many levels, and Vilsack personifies that in terms of, you know, Mr. Monsanto, somebody very comfortable with promoting agribusiness, crushing small farmers and consumers as well. And then one other person I'd mention that Roots Action has already announced we're going to be challenging in terms of Senate confirmation, and that is near a tandem. You can't really think of somebody who has been a Democratic Party outside of the government apparatchik who has been more hostile to progressives, not only personally towards Bernie Sanders, but the entire set of progressive movements. And so we have challenges and opportunities ahead. And certainly the no honeymoon campaign through Roots Action is gonna be part of that. And I have to say that one characteristic I'm afraid of a lot of progressive groups who have done very good work against Trump and to push the Democratic Party is that there is a hope to have access to the Pentagon, to the State Department, to Treasury Department and various bureaus under the incoming Biden administration. And at Roots Action, we don't want any access. We want to organize to pressure them because we don't believe that the neoliberal model that Biden personifies is anything but poisonous. And we've got to challenge that model and push for a genuinely progressive future, fight the right wing, the racist, 
the nativists, the misogynists, the xenophobes of the Republican Party, the neo-fascists who have found their home there, the white supremacists, and also fight for a progressive set of programs. And that means challenging corporate Democrats across the board. When it comes to access, have you gotten any threats, subtle, indirect or direct from from anyone in the in the Biden world? Uh, or uh, around the Biden world that you know, if if you carry on with this, then it's it's going to affect either your funding or your access or or anything along those lines. Uh, not directly at all. I mean, our, our our funding day to day and year to year is overwhelmingly coming from right. uh, the small donations that come from people who signed up at RootsAction.org. The pushback we got that was most overt was actually. When we were campaigning in favor of Bernie Sanders, and I know I was threatened with arrest in New Hampshire when I was passing out Roots Action flyers at a college where Pete Buttigieg was speaking. And the Buttigieg campaign had basically rented part of the public college campus and a Buttigieg person tried to have me arrested. And we dogged the Buttigieg campaign all over New Hampshire with our flyers, just informational about his sort of corkscrew backtrack double talk about Backing away from Medicare for all, likewise Biden. So, you know, that was in the primary rough and tumble. Now I think we're just grassroots organizers pushing like crazy from the bottom up. And frankly, it's another world different from the Biden world. They don't have an intersection with it, but they're going to be hearing from us big time in the next years. He is going to have to learn how to deal with it, no doubt about that. Norman Solomon from Roots Action, thank you much. Thank you so much for joining us on the conversation. Thanks, Ryan.